And if you would, I would invite you to take your Bible or phone and let's head for John's Gospel, John chapter 1, fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. Eric's in the back. He'd be glad to give you a copy of God's Word. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. If you'll retrieve that, I think that'll be a help along the way. And if you could silence your phone, that would really be uh, appreciated also. And I'd like to begin this morning, church family, by telling you the true story of a man whose name I doubt many, if any, of you would know, unless you happen to have a friend who has the same name. His name is Edward Kimball. And he lived in the middle of the 1800s. He's so unfamous, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. That's how unfamous he is. Edward Kimball was a very shy man, a a Christian, a Sunday school teacher of teenage boys in the church that he attended in Detroit. One day, Kimball was praying for the boys in his class, and he began to be burdened for one of them in particular, a 17 year old boy who seemed to have little interest in God or the Bible and and Kimball even wondered why he came to his class. Kimball was a shoe salesman and he sensed that the Lord was telling him he should go and speak to this young man about his soul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little little slow, yes. <laughs> or maybe a little stretch on my part. Pun intended. Pun intended. So here's this timid guy. <laughs> that, uh, no, don't do that again. That didn't that didn't work. So here's this timid guy. He's genuinely frightened by the thought of following through with what he thinks the Holy Spirit is telling him to do. In fact, he actually says in his story that he almost chickens out, but he fought through those feelings. He writes, I went and I saw the young man, and I don't think I spoke very well at all, and I'm fairly sure my presentation of the gospel and Jesus' claim on his life wasn't at all clear But that day, Dwight L. Moody gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, here's a nobody shoe salesman who, in 1854, introduces Jesus to a man who will go on to become one of the greatest evangelists, not only in America, but in Great Britain and Europe and worldwide It is estimated that D.L. Moody preached the gospel to over 100 million people in a time when there were no televisions or radios, no internet, no social media. 100 million heard the gospel through D.L. Moody. But the story doesn't end there, church family. One day, Moody preached in a small Irish chapel pastored by a man by the name of F.B. Meyer. Moody had told how his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, had shared Jesus with him, and this ignited an evangelistic fire in F.B. Meyer, who then went on to hold evangelistic crusades himself. In fact, he comes to America, and he holds a crusade in Northfield, Massachusetts. Meyer said at one of those meetings, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ... Are you willing at least to be made willing? Now that comment spoke to the heart of a young man named Wilbur Chapman who becomes an evangelist. Chapman goes on to invite a young ex-professional baseball player who was a Christian to join his crusade staff. His name was Billy Sunday. Sunday, in time, goes out on his own. He travels across America as an evangelist, and thousands give their lives to faith in Jesus Christ through Sunday's ministry. One who was powerfully impacted by Billy Sunday was a man named Mordecai Ham, an older man, tall, white hair. A group of Christians in Charlotte, North Carolina, invite Mordecai Ham in 1932 to come to Charlotte 
and hold a series of meetings. And so for several nights, he preaches that Jesus saves sinners by his death and by his resurrection and one's faith in Jesus. On the last night, sitting on the front row at that crusade was a skinny 16-year-old kid. Last night, the last song, the last verse of the last song, this lanky young man gets up and he responds to Mordecai Ham's challenge to give his life to Jesus Christ. That teenage boy was Billy Graham. He'll go on to preach the gospel to more than 215 million people in person to say nothing of television and radio. 185 countries he will visit and proclaim the truth of Jesus. Now, church family, who in their wildest imaginations would have been able to foresee what would be set in motion when one ordinary, painfully shy, timid shoe salesman named Edward Kimball heeds the call of God's Spirit and shares a real saving Jesus with another person? Who could have imagined what was set in motion that day when he listened and told Dwight L. Moody about Jesus? Unbelievable. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is what? It's not in vain. It's not in vain. It bears fruit. Church family, as we step once again into our study of the Gospel of John, we come to verses 35 to 51 today where we are going to meet five ordinary men who encounter Jesus and are called to a life-changing mission. God has a habit of choosing ordinary people to be his extraordinary life-changers. Ordinary people like you and like me. This is a room of ordinary people. And God loves to call ordinary people into his work. He gives us the awesome privilege of introducing other people to the greatest person in the universe. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He lets us partner with him in that. That's what's been driving John from the moment that we opened his book four weeks ago. John wanting us and all of his readers to know who Jesus is, to believe in him, to have eternal life. In the first 18 verses of his book, chapter 1, John leaves no room for us to come to any other conclusion than the fact that Jesus is God in human skin. If you've been with us, that we've gotten that much out of this portion of John's gospel. Remember this, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And we say, Amen to that. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh. He put on our skin and dwelt among us and we've seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And He put on flesh to make it possible for us to be sons and daughters of God. John tells us that in verse 12 of chapter 1, that we might be called children of God. We were destined for hell. Jesus breaks in and makes it possible for us to be called sons and daughters of the living God and to call him our father. Well, after that 18 verse opening masterpiece of Jesus truth, last time, if you were with us, we were introduced to John the Baptist. 
That starts in verse 19. He carries out his amazing role that God has assigned to him, which is to prepare a spiritually cold, unreceptive Jewish nation for the arrival of her Messiah, Jesus. John the Baptist's message, as we learned last time together, was very simple. Jesus, the Messiah, is here. Verse 26. See him for who he really is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29. And then, verse 37, follow him. Church family, I don't know if there is a simpler presentation of the gospel that we would ever find anywhere. He's here. See him for who he really is. And then what? Follow him. Man, we can all declare that much, can't we? We we, we can all get that down and, and share that truth with somebody else. He's here. God is here. See him true. And then follow. Follow him as your Lord and Savior. Well, John the Baptist's role now is largely done. He has faithfully prepared the way for Jesus' entrance into the world. And he's going to fade from view now. Make just one more brief appearance near the end of chapter 3. And that will be it for John. In fact, in chapter 3, and I can't wait till we get to this part of uh, our study together... It'll be John who, who says, Jesus must increase, and I must, what? I must decrease. And John was perfectly at peace with that. He was all about that. Jesus increasing and him decreasing. And so the apostle John, now in verses 35 and following, is going to introduce us to five quite ordinary men who meet Jesus, men whose lives are not only changed forever by Jesus, but five men who each in his own way is going to become part of this unbroken gospel chain made up of countless ordinary people who pass on to someone else the Jesus that they have come to know. It starts with these guys, and it's a joy to share their story. John introduces us to the first two of these five men in verses 35 to 40. And it reads like this. We'll put it up on the screen, but allow me to read these verses for us. The next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or about four o'clock in the afternoon, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Let's stop right there for just a moment. It's another day out at the Jordan River for John the Baptist, calling people to repent and get their hearts ready for the coming of the Messiah. Two men who have attached themselves to John are with him. Now, John's a teacher. He has followers. He has disciples. And here are two of them. But who are these two men? Well, we know one of them is Andrew because verse 40 tells us that that, that, that's who he is. He's the brother of Simon Peter. Now, the other guy is not named, but is believed virtually by all Bible scholars to be the Apostle John, the very same one who is writing this gospel. Remember, John never mentions his name even one time in his gospel. So he's holding true to form here by not mentioning his name. But he gives details here that that could only come from an eyewitness. I mean, he's breaking down the days, day one, day two, day three, day four. He's breaking out even the time of day 
It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Those are eyewitness details. He talks about two guys having a conversation with John. And even what John says in the midst of the conversation, that's all eyewitness stuff. So probably, most likely, that's John the Apostle. Seeing Jesus, who the Baptist knows is the Messiah, he points at him with his two disciples standing near him, and he says, look, look, the Lamb of God, he, he, he's back, he's here. But what he's really saying to Andrew and John, and we talked about this last time, what he's really saying is this, behold, the Lamb of God, what in the world are you doing hanging out with me? There's the Lamb of God. Why would you spend another moment hanging out with me. That's what he's really saying. That's why he's calling these guys' attention to Jesus. John's life mission is to point people away from himself and towards Jesus, and he's doing it again right here with Andrew and John. And and so they hear this. And in verse 37, immediately they drop whatever it was they were doing with the Baptist, and they follow Jesus. And that word followed, as we noted last time, that, that's in a verb tense that indicates a once and for all decisive action. They are all in in this moment. They're going to go in a Jesus direction from here on out. Now, Jesus, Jesus notices that they're following. Perhaps they're hanging back, though, unsure of, of what the next move should be. And so Jesus turns to them and he asks them, What are you seeking? What are you guys seeking? Church family, I would submit to you that is an awesome question. That is a great question. What are you seeking? Now, John has already opened the first 18 verses up to us in such a way that we have the identity of Jesus clearly established. He's God in human skin. So he's not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer, right? He knows the answer. When God asks questions in Scripture, it's always to get the other person or group of people to start thinking. And by the way, we're supposed to be thinkers here in church, right? Right? We all are thinking. Yep. So Jesus asks, what are you seeking? So... Let me ask you that question. What are you seeking? Such a great question. What are you? You. 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 And you. What are you seeking? What do you want out of life? What what are you trying to go for? What, What is your goal in this life? What fires your engines and gets you out of bed in the morning? What is that? Because there's a lot of false goals out there, inappropriate goals, unfulfilling goals that can be pursued. So what are you seeking? People chase wrong goals all the time, don't they? I mean, all the time. Fame? I want to be famous. I want to be famous. Boy, talk about a a shallow, short-lived at best goal famous really money Uh, money i want i want money but what about money as a goal it can never what it can never fully satisfy even the richest person in the world says i want a little bit more than i have power position an engraved plaque on an office door with your name on it, is that, is that the goal? Just remember that someone else's name was on that door before yours. You're looking for that perfect guy, that perfect gal who will never hurt you or disappoint you, is that the goal? As long as sin resides in the human heart, that person can't be found because we all have sin in our hearts, right? You're going to be disappointed at some point. 
What are you seeking? Jesus asked these two men, what are you seeking? And interestingly, they don't answer him, do they? Perhaps because they don't know for sure what they are seeking. They, they just know they're looking for something that they don't have. Something is not right in their life and they're looking for that. They're seeking, but it's, it's a moving target for them. The Baptist said this man pointing to Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. He's the promise of God, the Deliverer. But they're not sure. And so they ask a question themselves. Teacher, where are you staying? Now, let me give you the Tim version of that. Here's what I think they're actually saying. Can we hang out with you? Can we hang out with you? Because if we do, maybe we'll find out what we're missing, what we're looking for. Maybe if we hang out with you, you'll show us what we should be seeking. We're not sure, but can we hang out with you? You know, Andrew and John are like so many, honestly looking for something that will make life work. Give purpose, bring peace, satisfy, fulfill that empty hole that is designed to be filled only by God. And so they say, teacher, where are you staying? Can we hang out with you? And don't you love Jesus' reply? Verse 39, guys, come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. Andrew and John are looking for an address. In this moment, Jesus, though, what Jesus actually says is, come and I'll show you what you're really looking for. Guys, come and you will see. That's what he's saying. He doesn't care about an address. He wants them to see. And the reason we can say that so confidently is because something dramatic And life-changing takes place for these two men between verse 39 and verse 41. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour or about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They're going to stay the rest of the day with Jesus and they're going to stay with him through the night. And then the first thing Andrew does the very next morning in verse 41, is go find his brother Simon and he'll say to him, we found the Messiah. That's what he's going to say. We found the anointed one. We found the one God promised he would send to deliver his people and set them free. We have found him. Between we don't know what we're looking for in verse 39 And verse 41, we found the Messiah, something life-changing happens. For Andrew and John, a conversation that starts around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I suspect goes all the way through the night. Sleep would have been the last thing that Andrew and John had in mind. And so these three, I suspect... Never go to bed. And who can imagine what Jesus spoke to those two guys about? I find it fascinating and not just a little bit of a coincidence that Luke records a very similar scene to this one at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry after the resurrection. A meeting between himself and two followers on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24. The risen Jesus walks with two totally despairing, totally dejected disciples who had followed Jesus, saw him crucified, and now they believe that Jesus is dead. And so they're walking on this road, and you couldn't get lower than these two guys. They don't recognize Jesus, the risen Jesus, when he comes up and starts to walk with them. And Luke actually tells us what they talk about on this road and 
all the way to a house where they're about to have a meal. In Luke 24, 27, here's what it says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. Himself. Luke goes goes on to say that after Jesus talks about all those Old Testament scriptures and applies them to himself, he goes on to say that these two guys hear Jesus talk and their hearts burn within them because Jesus is revealing himself to them from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I can't prove this. But I believe the very same thing that happens at the end of Jesus' ministry happens here at the beginning of his ministry. Only the hearts that are burning are these two seekers named Andrew and John. All night, Jesus talks to them, opening up the Old Testament scriptures so that when the sun comes up, neither of them have any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. They're two ordinary guys, fishermen, two seekers looking for answers to a life that matters. And Jesus supplies the answer. It's himself. And their hearts burn. And they believe in Jesus. And that's what we should know about Andrew and John. They're seeking the truth. And when they find it in Jesus, they cannot remain silent about that. They have to tell someone else. We read of Andrew, verse 41. He first, first thing, First thing that morning, after that night with Jesus, he first found his own brother Simon and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He brought him. This pretty much captures the person of Andrew in a single sentence. Whenever we see Andrew in the scriptures, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Here, after an indescribable night with Jesus, confirming his Messiahship, Andrew has to go find his brother. And apparently he's out there at the Jordan River also looking for the Messiah. And, and so, so Andrew doesn't even let a day pass before he tells somebody about Jesus. But then in John chapter 6, it's going to be Andrew who will bring a little boy with a picnic basket to Jesus. And out of that flows the miracle of the fish and the loaves. Thousands of people are fed. It's Andrew who brings that little boy to Jesus. And in chapter 12 of John, Andrew brings some Greek speakers to Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And so Andrew's the guy who brings these, these seekers to Jesus. He makes sure they have that opportunity. And so Andrew is a rather inconspicuous, behind-the-scenes operator. He's not that bull in the china closet like his brother, Simon Peter. He's, He's in the back, always thinking about others, usually individuals as opposed to large crowds, and he's inviting them to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I would just say on the heels of that, We should never underestimate the power of an invitation. Ever. Andrew invites his brother to meet Jesus. When did you last invite someone to meet your Jesus? When was the last time that happened in your life? A family member, a brother, a sister, a parent, a friend. I would just remind you that if they haven't got Jesus in their life yet, then they're looking for something to fill a space that only Jesus can fill. But they're probably trying to fill that space with something else. Invite them. This moment would say to you and me, 
What's the worst thing that can happen if you invite a friend or a family member to meet your Jesus? What is the worst thing that can happen? Tell me. They could say no. <gasps> what if they did that? What, 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 about, what about Edward Kimball, this shy shoe salesman? What if he had, had gone to D.L. Moody and D.L. Moody says, I don't want your Jesus. What about that? Well, that would be sad, wouldn't it? But Edward Kimball would have been faithful because D.L. Moody's salvation was not up to Kimball. That's God's business. All he's supposed to do is introduce Jesus to D.L. Moody. And I would just say this, church family, man, our skin better be thick enough to handle a no from a friend or a family member when we ask, do you want to meet my Jesus? And they say no. Our, our skin better be thick enough to handle that because rejection is about to get a whole lot worse for you and me as our culture continues to make this headlong journey towards hatred of Jesus and all things Christian. We better toughen up, right? We better be able to handle and know. Well, that's Andrew. He's got to share Jesus. And he does it with his brother first. But not only his brother. So John. Now, now John, too, is a seeker of the truth. In fact, he loves the truth. We noted on the day we stepped into our study of John for the very first time how the word truth shows up 45 times in John's writing. He loves the truth. And Jesus is the truth, right? The way, the truth, and the life, John will remind us in John 14, 6. And this ordinary fisherman, once he finds the truth and discovers that the truth is a person, man, he has to share that. He can't be silent. He'll end up writing five of the New Testament books in our Bible, every single one of them pointing to who? (laughs) The Lamb of God, to Jesus. In fact, he'll say this about the book we're studying. In fact, this ought to be already burned into your brain. We've looked at it every morning for the last four mornings. John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. John can't keep silent. He made a discovery at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a day that he'll never forget. And he has to share that discovery. I remember the day. Do you remember the day that you crossed over from death to life, that you discovered the day you discovered who Jesus really was? Do you remember that moment? I remember that moment. Twelve-year-old kid laying in my upper bunk just before bed in a little track house in Dallas, Texas. I remember that, that moment. When Jesus became real to me, my Savior and my Lord. John remembers it. Four o'clock in the afternoon. And I've got to tell somebody about Jesus. Andrew and John are the first disciples, but they are not the last. Verse 41. And Andrew first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Your name is Simon. And though I've not met your dad, I know your dad. I know who he is. And you are Simon, and I'm going to call you Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky. And you, you laugh. Well, that's exactly the truth. That's exactly what this says. Simon was this man's given Hebrew name. It means listen. Cephas is Aramaic. Peter, Petros, is Greek. Both of those names mean rock. What a strange first exchange between 
Jesus and Peter. You are Simon, but from now on you are Rocky. And there's no explanation in John's gospel for why Jesus does this. He just states it. That may be because John already knows that the other three gospels have been written. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Peter, the rock, will help to launch the church and lead it as it takes its first baby steps. The rock. It's true, Peter has a personality that's larger than life. He's dynamic, he's strong, he's bold, he's in charge, he's confrontive, he's commanding. And the church is going to need leadership like that as it gets its, its first start. It's going to need a Peter. It's going to need this rock. But the reason John doesn't tell us why Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter is because this moment is not about Peter. It's about Jesus. And let's not miss that. The authority here in, that Jesus has, that's what we don't want to miss. Verse 42, you are Simon, you shall be called the rock, period. We're not going to debate that. We're not going to talk about that. It doesn't matter whether you like that name or not. That's your name from this day forward. This is, this is really all about the absolute authority of Jesus to choose Simon and name Simon and determine Simon's destiny. We don't want to miss that. John wants us knowing that. Jesus has the authority to change our destiny, doesn't he? He has the authority to change your destiny, my destiny, and do with us whatever he chooses. Back in 112, we read, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We sang about that. We are sinners destined to spend an eternity separated from God, but through faith in Jesus, he gives us a new title, doesn't he? What's the new title? Children of God. That's what you are today if your faith is in Jesus Christ. He's given you a new destiny. You were bound for hell. He's going to give you heaven. You're a child of God, a son, a daughter of God. He changes our name from sinner to saint. He changes our destiny from hell to heaven. He has that authority. Simon to Rocky. An ordinary fisherman who will emerge as a strong leader. He'll be given a huge responsibility. And he'll lead the church. And he'll lead the church well. Well, as John's narrative continues, a fourth man comes into view. His name is Philip. Philip. Verse 43. The next day, the next day, here's our eyewitness John saying, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Church family noticed this because there's a shift in strategy that takes place here in this, in this moment. Up until now, seekers have been going to Jesus. Andrew, John, Peter, they go to Jesus. But now Jesus does what? He goes seeking. He goes seeking. And in his sights is a man up in Galilee, north of Lake Galilee, from the little fishing village of Bethsaida, which was Andrew and Peter's hometown. Now, Bethsaida is a full day's walk from where Jesus is at Bethany beyond the Jordan. But he says to Andrew, John, and Peter, I'm going. You're welcome to tag along, but I'm going. Somebody I need to see. And so the other three, we presume, fall in step, and we can rightly imagine that the whole way up to Galilee, there's this, this continuing teaching on the part of Jesus, taking the Old Testament and pointing out how he is the fulfillment of all of that, and their interrogation, question after question after question, because these hearts, these men's hearts are burning. They're like sponges. They're walking with God. They're not going to miss that moment. 
Well, they get to Bethsaida, and Jesus goes straight to Philip. No word about whether the others tagged along, but we presume they did. Jesus goes straight to Philip, and he says, follow me. Follow me. Present tense, continuous action, keep on following me. That's a statement that Jesus makes again and again and again. Twenty times he's going to say that to somebody in the Gospels. Here he says it to this man. It's an ordinary guy, a fisherman, we presume, from a fishing town. Now, church family, the the Philip that we come to learn about from other places in John's Gospel would lead us very likely to conclude that Philip is not disciple material. In John chapter 6, there's this huge crowd that gathers to hear Jesus, and Jesus turns to Philip, and he says, Philip, where can we buy food to feed all of these people? We're talking 10,000-plus people. Philip, where can we buy some food for them? Philip says, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. That'll take way more money than we have. And even if we had the money, there's not enough food around to make that happen. Philip's a numbers cruncher. He is a realist's realist. This guy lives with his feet firmly on the ground and he never gets outside the box, ever. In John chapter 12, those Greek guys that I told you Andrew brings to Jesus, well, they first come to Philip. And Philip doesn't take him to Jesus. He takes him to Andrew. Why? We're not told. But there's something indecisive and, and tentative about, about Philip as a guy. Andrew takes him, but Philip won't do that for whatever reason. And then in John chapter 14, it's Philip who blurts out to Jesus in the upper room on the night before the cross that if Jesus will just show them God the Father, they'll get through this rough patch where Jesus is talking about going away. It's Philip who says, hey, just show us God. That'll get us through the moment. Jesus is genuinely saddened by Philip's request. He says, Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still really don't grasp fully who I am? If you see me, you've seen the Father. Do you remember that moment? Well, that was Philip. Philip's probably not our choice for a frontline disciple, a hardcore realist who might see the glass half full most of the time, analytical, sometimes skeptical, rather earthbound in his thinking, a little bit insecure. Not our choice. But Philip was definitely Jesus' choice. Though we're not privy to the details, sometime after Philip hears the words, follow me, Jesus takes enough time to do what he did with Andrew, John, and Peter, and that is connect the dots. The Old Testament passages of scripture with himself and Philip becomes convinced Jesus is the Messiah and he has to go tell a friend he's got to tell a friend he can't keep that to himself and that's what Jesus knew about Philip he had to tell somebody verse 45 so Philip found Nathaniel and he says we found him The Messiah, we found him. Now, clearly, Nathaniel is a friend of Philip's. And church family, it is often friendships that are going to provide the most fertile soil for sharing Jesus with somebody else. It's going to be your friend. And the reason that is true is because you get to introduce Jesus to someone that you already have a relationship with. You have shared common experiences, shared connecting points. And most of all, you probably have some trust. When someone becomes a follower of Jesus, become a brand new Christian, man, what's the first thing they need to do? Often, it's go tell a friend about the Jesus they've found. Maybe you did that when you first came to faith in Jesus. I've got to tell my best friend. 
Well, that's Philip. He's going to test the bonds of trust, though, with Nathanael. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. See, Jesus has talked to him about the Old Testament and confirmed it. Nathanael, though, says to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip bursts on Nathanael with an apparent, while Nathaniel's apparently doing something, just taking a nap under a tree, we're not sure. He's from Cana, a little village north of Galilee there, and not very far from Nazareth, and so you clearly pick up on a, a crosstown rivalry going on. Nathaniel doesn't like Nazareth. He has a prejudice against its people. And what's more, the name Joseph doesn't mean anything to Nathaniel. Joseph, I don't know Joseph. What does that matter? The real clincher, though, is the Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. And Nathaniel knows that. The Messiah is going to come from where? From Bethlehem. Nathaniel knows that. And so he rolls his eyes when Philip says, we found the Messiah. Oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Come out of that town? But... You know, Philip, he refuses to be put off by his friend. Verse 46, Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see for yourself. You don't have to trust me. Come and see for yourself. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus, before he ever meets Nathaniel, knows everything about this guy, doesn't he? Why? Why? Because he's God. Because he's God. He knows what's going on on the outside of Nathaniel's life and also what's on the inside. When Jesus says, you're a man in whom there's no deceit, Jesus uses an interesting word for deceit. It's a fishing term. You're not a guy who takes the bait. You're not that kind of guy, Nathaniel. You're honest. You're not two-faced. You tell it like you see it. You're a man of integrity. I know that about you. I know that. I know your heart. Well, not only that, Jesus even knows the kind of tree that Nathaniel's sitting under. And so Nathaniel does a little bit on-the-spot reasoning, and he concludes just like you did, hey, only God can know those things. Only God. And that's it for him. He's in. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Man, you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus says, Nate, (laughs) you believe because I demonstrate omniscience to you? Man, that's just the beginning. You haven't seen anything yet. Starting now, you're going to see things going on all the time between earth and heaven. You're going to see it. In fact, it's very interesting. It's going to be Nathaniel's hometown of Cana in three days that Jesus is going to do his very first miracle. It's going to be in Nathaniel's town. He's going to see heaven come down. We're going to look at that next time, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But Nathaniel, for his part, man, he is all in. And tradition says that after Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' ascension, Nathaniel makes his way to Armenia, north of modern-day Iran, where he will ultimately be crucified for leading a government official to faith in Jesus. He's going to die on a cross for sharing Jesus with another person. Five ordinary men, church family, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel who have a life-changing encounter with Jesus 
And they have to tell somebody about that. They become part of the enlarging of God's kingdom, which happens one person at a time, right? That's how it happens. So fellow lover of Jesus, is it not the same for us today as it was for these five guys? Ordinary people. Just ordinary people. That's all of us in this room. That's what we are. Ordinary people who have encountered the living, loving, saving God who put on skin and and, and paid our sin debt and rose from the dead. God invites us to be part of something extraordinary and he expects us to be part of his kingdom advancing work one person at a time. Just like Edward Kimball, a shoe salesman who, though apprehensive and and reluctant, he seeks out D.L. Moody, who touches F.B. Meyer, who influences Wilbur Chapman, who recruits Billy Sunday, who challenges Mordecai Ham, who invites Billy Graham to trust Jesus. It all begins with an ordinary shoe salesman and a 17-year-old kid. It's extraordinary. And, and Edward Kimball, because he was faithful and not fearful, trusting and not timid, spoke rather than remain silent. He gets to share in the salvation story of millions and millions and millions of people simply because he was faithful to tell another about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Ordinary though we are, we're called to be part of this same extraordinary saving work of God. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe it? Our names written into the tapestry of who knows how many salvation stories. But for that to happen, we must be willing to say, as these five were, come. And see my Jesus. It's up to Jesus to do the rest. Our part is to simply say, Come, let me introduce you to my Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? Let's pray.